Hi, welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This is your host, Josh Campson. Today we have Regina Edwards on the show. She is the owner and operator of Edwards Family Law in Georgia. She is a family law attorney and that's all she does. Uh, we talk about her being in a very specific niche, how she goes from being a White House intern to a remote family law attorney. We talk a lot about the value of flat fee work versus hourly work, as well as uh, the impact that the pandemic has had on her practice and her ability to move around and work virtually. So I think it's a good episode, especially for people that are interested in some of these alternative arrangements, flat fees, remote work, virtual offices, et cetera. Uh, but even if you're not a lawyer, we do talk a good bit about family law and how that works, custody battles, et cetera. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, as always, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit that subscribe button, share it with a friend. We really appreciate it. And it really helps the show. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Regina, thanks for joining us on Interrogatories. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So you're coming to us from Florida? Uh, Yes, I'm doing kind of a week-long working vacation in Panama City. So I just kind of like to change up my work environment so I don't get bored to death. And that's where I am this week. I know I said we would talk about this at the end, but now it occurs to me, maybe we should talk about it at the beginning, that we (laughs) met through a Facebook group you created called Lawyers on the Beach. Yes. Yeah. So I started Lawyer on the Beach in, I want to say, fall of 2019, just because I've kind of been virtual for a while and people would just kind of constantly private message me for tips and tricks. So I just decided just to create a group and just sort of post everything there so I wouldn't have to deal with sort of the deluge of emails. So it ended up being pretty timely because obviously COVID hit, you know, a few months later. So a lot of people that were kind of poo-pooing the whole virtual law practice thing were like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) So now I have to do it. Um, You know, maybe she has some ideas that aren't terrible. So it's ballooned. I think we have almost 6,000 members and it's a pretty active group. And we just kind of discuss ways to be virtual in our law practices. And then there's also a heavy promotion on but I like to call life work balance because I think life is always before work. So that's that. Yeah, I agree. So where else have you been in the last 18 months? Oh, it seems like you, you pop around, lot. right? It's yeah. probably 20 different places. So when COVID first hit, I came to Florida for four weeks and then I had a second home in Arizona. So I was there. I went to Mexico a couple of times. I, every month I was gone. Um, doing something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I took, took my practice remotely and because I'm single, and I don't have children. Obviously it was a lot easier and I would just wear three masks on a plane. So, you know, I've never had COVID or anything, but I just traveled all the time and just sort of, you know, transported my work environment to make it a little less boring. So it sounds like you had probably the best COVID of anyone I know. <laughs> it, it was not terrible. It was not the best, the, the best uh, lockdown, the best quarantine. Lockdown, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it definitely allowed me to travel. It definitely sort of slowed down the pace of everything. You know, I've been advocating virtual work and, you know, electronic transmission of documents and virtual hearings for the longest time. And people just thought it was just a terrible idea until they were forced to do it. And, you know, now that we know that it's possible, it just, to me, I think opens up just a, a whole new world of how, how to lawyer. And I think it's really going to help people with, you know, you know, life work balance, um, you know, trying to manage, you know, families and spouses and the household and trying to practice without, you know, being stuck in traffic to show up for hearings. There's just a lot of things that can be addressed 
um, by using, you know, virtual techniques and practices where, where lawyers just don't get as burned out as they seem to be. And so your practice is in Georgia, right? Yes, my practice is in Georgia. And what's Georgia doing? Are they are they still remote? Are they back in person? So that's a county by county basis. So the counties that I practice in really kind of embraced technology and that's Gwinnett and Fulton. And I absolutely love them for that. So in Fulton, it's a unique county because they have a family law division and they had status conferences before you had to go in person to these status conferences where it's a cattle call. It's, you know, 100 cases on the calendar and you're there just to announce what your position on the cases. And you talk to the judge for five minutes and you go home, but it's a full wasted day and your clients had to take off work for it. Um, so now those have been done virtually. The um, the judges have indicated they're going to continue to do those status conference vir- conferences virtually, and it's just it's just such a great idea because it doesn't it allows the client not to have to take off of work for what is you know a few minutes in front of a judge. It to me this kind of virtual world has encouraged um, congeniality among the bar um, efficiency, which is something I love, especially since I'm flat fee. Um, so it, it, it's great. And then Gwinnett has done the same thing where we don't have status conferences, but we've done trials and hearings um, by Zoom remotely. And, you know, there's been a few hiccups here and there, I'm sure. But overall, we were able to sort of deliver justice to our clients without waiting. Conversely, there were some some courthouses that basically just shut down. There's one county I'm not going to mention decided they weren't, they just were not going to handle family law cases during the pandemic. So the past year and a half, nobody has had a hearing. What? Yeah, it was crazy. I don't practice in that county for other reasons, but this sort of (laughs) kind of uh, ratified my decision not to do so. But yeah, so if you were, you know, stereotypically the guy where your wife moved out and took the kids because it happens a lot and you couldn't see your children, you also could not get in front of a judge to get an order to see your children because the judge just decided that he was not going to you know, have hearings unless they were in person. And I think that's just a real travesty. We have these things available to us to make it easier for us to practice law remotely. And there's no reason not to be embracing those things. So now the cases are backed up. People are getting trial dates into 2023. And it was just so unnecessary. And have you heard from, you know, fellow members of the bar? Are people suing the court system? Because it seems like there could be some Interesting 1983 actions there based on like people getting. They're definitely mad about it. I know that. Um, And it's difficult to represent a client where you basically say, I'm sorry, I don't know if I can help you see your kids for the next year and a half. I mean, that's that's not a position I want to be in. So I will admit that I always take the easy way out and I like an easy life. So I just choose not to practice in those counties because I don't want to have those conversations with my clients. Yeah. Well, up here, we don't. It's also county by county in Pennsylvania. And in some counties, it's judge to judge. Uh, see so it to figure it out. But uh, I did the opposite of you. I expanded my counties during COVID and everything was online. Now I've got a few cases that are a little far and they're starting to move uh, back in person. So I'm a little spending a little more time in the car than I had originally anticipated, but that's okay. I get uh, all my backlog of podcasts listened to. Um, but no, it's good. So you know, I want to backtrack a little bit. You practice family law, but I wanted yeah. to find out how you got there. And I was looking at your resume or your LinkedIn. And I see, you know, obviously you went to school and you kind of just have one line on there, White House intern. Uh, (laughs) And it's kind of buried and fair enough. I worked for a judge that got convicted. So I keep that off my resume uh, (laughs) too. Uh, But it looks like you worked in the Clinton White House. And I want to know how you ended up doing that. What was it like? And 
you know, what what's a day to day as a White House intern like? I mean, it seems pretty cool. I've seen the West Wing. I'm guessing it's just like that. A lot of walking and talking. I wish. So I, I've always been involved in politics, like super obsessed with it, like to a degree that just doesn't make any sense. Um, so I was born in 78 and I vividly remember staying up all night watching the 1988 election. I don't know why it was a complete blowout, but I just refused to go to bed. I'm like 10 years old. My parents are like, go to bed. It's over. Um, but I just really been involved in politics. So I actually when I went to law school, thought I was going to be a lobbyist. So, you know, obviously a White House internship was a really prestigious thing and I applied and I really didn't expect to get it. And I was one of the, the youngest uh, people ever to do it because I was just kind of young in general since I I'd skipped a grade and I finished college a year early. Um, so I think I was 17 when I applied and 18 when I did it. And it's open to, you know, really anyone. Obviously, it was a pretty heavy emphasis on people from Arkansas at the time that I was there. Um, but actually, I and two other people from my school were selected, which was actually a really big deal because I went to an HBCU, a historically black college or university, and they really just didn't have a high presence um, in the White House. So, you know, that was, you know, a really big deal for three interns to be selected. So I worked in the domestic policy department, I think Carol Rascal, Carol Rasco was the um, domestic policy advisor at the time. So I actually literally was in the West Wing. So some people are in the building across the street, but I definitely was in the West Wing top floor. Um, and I just kind of saw it as a job. I went every day. I was in charge of uh, printing the calendar for Ms. Rasco to make sure that she had all her appointments available. We would assist her with kind of gathering. She liked to write thank you notes to everybody that she met. So we basically would kind of gather her notes of when she met with people and she would kind of take notes and she would write all the notes themselves that we just kind of would lay it out in a way would make it easier for her to respond on. Um, we sometimes responded to letters from constituents who wanted autographs from the president or, you know, George Stephanopoulos was pretty popular. <laughs> so a lot of people wanted his yeah, autograph. I could see reason. that. <laughs> and he was in the office, I'm going to say right below me. <laughs> um so yeah, that's what I did. I was there for six weeks. It definitely was a springboard into something else. And I definitely enjoyed my time there. So it's a, but is it like a paid thing? Where do you live? Oh, no, How does no, 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 It's not paid. So, you know, obviously it skews more towards, you know, frankly privileged people that have right. the ability to not, <laughs> to not have to work for six weeks, but I'm from Virginia. So I got to live at home for free, obviously. And I just you know took the Metro in every day and, you know, I, Obviously, my parents fed me, so I was in the position where I didn't have to work. Um, but yeah, it is an unpaid position, and sometimes it turns into something more. A lot of interns, you know, will really kind of bond with their staff, and they'll be taken on as a um, you know paid staffer. But I mean, I was a freshman in college, so obviously, I was going to go back to school and finish. And then I ended up deciding, you know, to kind of turn away from politics at that point because that was what 1996. So then we had. <laughs> all of the drama and the impeachment and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, maybe I don't want to get involved in politics at this point. And you never got back into it? Nope. Not really. it. I did some sort of local stuff in my senior year. I worked for the Democratic Party in North Carolina, and that was when John Edwards was running for, I want to say, Senate for the first time. And he won and it was kind of a big deal because he was a complete you know, outsider. Um, so I enjoyed that, but I just kind of knew as my career, I, I didn't think it was something that I was going to do because it was just sort of a day in, day out, 24 hour, 
you know, you're constantly putting out fires. It's like whack-a-mole. And if that's how it was in 1998, I know it's a lot worse than that now. So, Yeah, I chair our local uh, Democratic Party. So I am, I've, I've run for office and the whole bit. It's, it's worse than that now. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> so you went from 1988, staying up all night, uh, to now you don't do anything political. Not a whole lot. I'll do kind of spotty things like I'll do some, you know, voter drives, get out the vote things. Um, I did some things with because in Georgia, Stacey Abrams obviously had a huge get out the vote initiative, which <laughs> worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll do some sort of spotty things. But honestly, just for my mental health, I just I just choose not to be completely enmeshed in it like I was before. Smart. Yeah, that's a good idea. I removed The New York Times from my phone to, for my mental health. Uh, so how do you go from hey, I want to be a politician to I want to practice what some would call the most combative area of law, which is family law. So to me, I guess I'm naive. I think I've watched Mr. Smith goes to Washington many times. But honestly, the idea of politics was, oh, I want to help people. I want to, you know, public service and all that. So that just kind of morphed into when I was in law school, I learned about uh, legal aid organizations. And so I did an internship in law school with a legal aid organization. And that's where I started working when I got out of law school. So that was kind of my way to do public service, but as a lawyer, because we're obviously representing people who are lower income and can't afford attorneys, just giving them access to justice. So that was kind of my way of, you know, helping serve the public and I'm getting paid, even though not a lot, (laughs) but something, but I'm still kind of fulfilling what my need was at the time to kind of feel like I, I needed or wanted to give back. And how does that, is it, you were doing family law, legal aid, and then you said, oh, this is, this is for me. I was doing some, so we did everything. So we did, you know, the entire gamut of civil cases that you can imagine that lower income people face, landlord, tenant, social security, and we had a domestic violence, a lot of domestic violence cases. So the restraining order sometimes inevitably would turn into divorces. And, you know, everyone says about family law, you either love it or you hate it. And most people hate it. So I think I made the mistake one day of saying, well, I don't hate it. And he said, great, well, you can do all of it. (laughs) So I ended up with all of the family law cases and I didn't hate it. I I really, especially at that level, you really could see a major change in their lives based on, to me, what would be sort of a small shift. Like if a domestic violence victim, you know, was afraid to leave their spouse because they had no money, they had nowhere to go, they had no idea they were going to take care of their kids a restraining order and a temporary child support order of, you know, $750 a month is literally life-changing. So, you know, I, I do enjoy that part of family law that, you know, you really do get to help people transition from, you know, a relationship that is not ideal to a new co-parenting relationship and sort of getting out of a situation. And I don't feel like anyone should feel stuck, you know, in general, if you want to leave, you should be able to leave and you shouldn't have this. Oh, my goodness. Will my children starve to death <laughs> if I leave? That shouldn't be a consideration. So moving from legal aid and now you're a solo and you've been doing that for a long time. How did you decide or why did you decide to make look that you work, went to a firm and then you went out on your own? What made you decide to make that transition? So after legal aid, I did disability law for about a year and a half, which was was fine, but it was administrative and it just wasn't, you know, as challenging as, as litigation. And then I moved to a family law firm who was just terrible. And I was only there for six months. So I 
it had a plan to have my own firm, but it certainly wasn't going to be six months after I started with a firm, but it was just so awful and they treated their clients so poorly and they overbuilt so much that I just, I just sort of just took a leap and went out on my own. And I think that was 2005. So yeah, it has been a while and I just have never looked back and I don't think I'd ever work for her firm again. Uh, as my wife tells me I haven't had a real job in about uh, 11 years since I worked for myself. So she says, I don't know if I could, if you could make it in a real job. And I said, Oh, I know well, I couldn't. I have yeah. no illusions about that. <laughs> yeah. Meetings. That's not for me. Uh, yeah. You want me to show up and put on pants every day? Nope. Can't exactly. Do it. Especially these days. Yeah. None of the, none of the pants even fit. No. Uh, so one of the things that you advertise and you talk a lot about is your flat fee structure instead of most family law attorneys who you know, bill by the hour. Is that right. something that you came into originally? Cause you had seen, well, you mentioned the overbilling at the firm you were with, or was that something that developed over time? It developed over time. So, you know, the, the billable hour, hour is just drilled into our heads so much. You actually don't think that there's another way. And I knew that I didn't want it to do the same thing that my firm was doing, which is charging really low retainers and then just billing them up the wazoo and sending them bills every two weeks because Part of my problem was there was just a lack of transparency. You know, if you have a contested divorce case with when you're arguing about self-employment and conduct issues and children and custody, charging a $3,500, I know it was $1,800, $1,800 retainer is just silly because you're going to blow through that before I even, before you walk out the door. Um, and of course, these clients' bills would grow and they would hit $20,000 before you even, you know, had a hearing and the firm would just make us withdraw. So you have these clients who, from their perspective, I spent $20,000 and they would say, I got nothing. And we all know that's not the case. We were actually working on it. But from their end, they didn't get anything. They don't have a court order. They've never been to court. They're in the exact same position they were before, except now they have $20,000 less to show for it. And so I just kind of made it a goal for that not to happen. So I would really sort of manage my clients' money and, and at least get them through a temporary order. And if they couldn't afford me for the rest of the case, that's fine. But at least they had some sort of temporary order in place. So they felt like at least my money was sort of well spent. So that's kind of how I approached it in the beginning, even though I was hourly. And then I said to myself, well, why don't I just place it as a flat fee? It's a flat fee, you know, for the first part of the case to get to the temporary hearing. And that way the client has predictability and, um, you know, transparency and they don't have to worry about the other side with, you know, shenanigans. And so I started flat fees in, I want to say 2008 or 2009. It's been a really, really, really long time. And of course, there's been some mistakes where I've under, you know, priced some things, but those are just sort of learning experiences that you go from. But overall, it's forced me to be efficient. Um, it's forced me to really drill down into what's important and have the hard conversations. You know, yes, I can, we can hire a private investigator to find out if your wife is having an affair with the guy she met on a cruise. Or you cannot spend that money and focus on resolving a case in a way that you can live with and, you know, you can move on without sort of all this mudslinging. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people really don't take into account the cost benefit analysis of litigation. It's just litigate, litigate, litigate. And then when the dust settles, it's like I've seen people blow through their entire marital estate on attorney's fees. And I think it's I think it's sad and I think it's ridiculous and I think it's it's really attorneys doing a disservice to their clients when they do that. So when you, one of the things that 
I don't do family law. I'll take one custody case every two and a half years for a former client, and then yeah, that's myself. enough. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, and then regret it. Oh, so yeah, I'll take a simple thing, and then it blows up, and whatever. Uh, although I do child welfare, so I represent parents who have had their kids taken by the state. So it's easy to litigate against the state because you know it's not the other parent. Uh, sure. But it's I don't have to have the conversations with clients about are they being too aggressive? You know, how much do you want to do revenge or litigate for? principle, that kind of thing, using the kids against each other. I mean, these are the things in family law that I didn't enjoy, right? That you said, you know, some people hate it, some people love it. I was definitely on the hate it spectrum. What kind of conversations do you have with clients uh, on those issues of, hey, look, you know, we're not, we're not out here for principle. We're out here to get a result, that kind of thing. Well, that's pretty much what I say. And I just kind of look at their overall picture. Now they've got millions of dollars and they have, you know, genuine issues about what the marital estate consists of. And we may need a forensic account. Okay. That's one thing that, you know, this is going to be a a case that requires a lot of money to get resolved. Um, But a lot of times that's just simply not the case. You've got middle income people and I consider middle income to be, you know, around maybe the hundred thousand dollar a year range. And, most people, I think, live beyond their means. That's just kind of my general <laughs> feel about people after 20 years of doing divorce work. So when you take those two incomes on one household and then you split across two households and you've got all this debt, it becomes a tighter situation. And the only thing that's going to make it even tighter than that is then piling on attorney's fees on top of that. So I try to give people realistic expectations in the beginning where, you know, especially if there's a disparity in income and someone's going to have to pay alimony. I just tell the person paying alimony, you're going to pay more than you want to pay. And the other person is going to get less than they want to get. And we have to find the happy medium in there somewhere where, you know, the assistance that you provide isn't going to kill you. You don't have to live in a cardboard box, but it's going to be enough to help sort of at least try to sort of level the playing field. So, um, you know, there isn't this huge disparity, but it's just not worth spending a whole bunch of time and money on, or sometimes people want to argue on principle and it's not worth it. So Georgia has this law, which I think is pretty misogynistic because it unnecessarily targets women, but it says that if you're having an affair and it's the cause of the end of the marriage, it's a barred alimony. Well, obviously that's going to disproportionately affect women because it's usually women seeking alimony. And there is no similar sort of penalty for men. So, you know, men can have affairs with, you know, 50 women and a goat and it doesn't matter financially most of the time, unless you're spending a whole bunch of money, you know, marital money on the affair. Whereas, you know, a woman, if she has an affair and the guy's like, gotcha, and then files for divorce, you know, it's a bar to alimony. So that's, that's a law that I don't like. And that's something that I have a hard conversation with sometimes where clients came to me and say, well, the Google told me (laughs) that if my wife's having an affair, I don't have to pay her alimony. And it's, you kind of have to explain, well, it's not just that she's having an affair. You have to prove that that's the reason the marriage ended, not the 10 affairs that you had before she had her one. So we can either spend $40,000 litigating it, or you can give her the $20,000 in alimony that she asked for and move on with your life. Um, so those are the conversations that I have. And I think I tend to pick clients that are pretty reasonable and have reasonable expectations and you know, they're usually pretty happy with the results because whether we settle or go to trial, you know, usually the trial ends up pretty much where I told them it was going to, and it doesn't cost them a ton of money to get there. Let's back that up for one second. So you're telling me when you're saying it uh, uh, targets women, you mean in the scenario where a woman is not the primary breadwinner? Correct. In other words, yes, the woman's making less be, money. 
Right. Because that would be the only time she would be seeking alimony. But just, yes, statistically, in cases where people are seeking alimony, it's usually the woman. So, yes, that's why I think it unnecessarily targets women, because usually they're the ones seeking alimony. So if someone if the cause for the divorce in Georgia is an affair, uh, that person who was having an affair 100 percent can get no alimony. Correct. Can they still get child support? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just not not spousal support. So and I try to look at it it holistically. And, you know, the reality is the courts are kind of look at it from a best interest of the child point of view, especially if there are children involved. And I'll say, look, even if we prove it and trust me, it's hard to prove it's not, you know, you've got a whole bunch of text messages in the middle of the night. No, you have to prove an affair, like the nitty gritty of it. So even if I prove that, sometimes a judge might sort of make it up to the other party by ordering more child support or in, in an unequal division of assets. So the other party might get what they want anyway. So that's why I say it's probably not worth just going you know, full bore to try to prove these allegations where monetarily it, it might not come out in the wash and you might end up on the, the short end of it. Interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, so, you know, you're in this family law sphere, you've been doing it, you start out doing it, you enjoy it. Uh, what made you decide to really focus just on family law as opposed to a lot of solos who will kind of branch out, they'll do a little estate planning, they'll do a little, um, I don't know, contract work, whatever people do, maybe a DUI here or there, but you seem to really niche down, uh, into family law and not straight. And has that been difficult or has it been rewarding? That was like six questions in one. I'm a. I'm not an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert at. Uh, Objection. I'm not Terry question. Yeah. No, I. To me, you know, now I forgot what the beginning of the question was. Oh, do I enjoy it? Yes. So I decided early on to sort of niche down, and I really did. So when I first started my practice, uh, because I came from a father's rights firm, that's what my niche was. And back in. I guess 2005, 2006, when I started my own practice, not many smaller solo family law firms have their own website. And I know how to build websites. So I had one. So I would just absolutely dominate it in terms of SEO and all this other stuff. So I got a ton of calls and my firm grew exponentially. And yeah, we were known statewide as the father's rights law firm. Like that's just what my niche was. So I've always found that having a niche is to me, better than just having diverse practice areas, number one, because it just sort of drives people to me. And honestly, I don't like to learn new things at this point. I just, (laughs) I know what I know. I'm really good at family law. I'm really terrible about at everything else. And I like being good at this one area of law. I like, you know, judges knowing when they come in my court, when I come in their court and run a family law case that I know the law, I'm going to know the facts. I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, And I'm going to present a case and facts that line up with, you know, what I'm asking the court to do. So I just, I like specialization and it also it leads to automation and efficiency um, when you're kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again. So um, yeah, so right now I'm actually niching down further to, to just divorce. So I now represent equally men and women, but I've decided to kind of just focus on divorce cases versus custody cases like modifications, legitimations, paternity, that kind of thing, and just focus on divorces. And then would you do the custody if it's, you know, a package? Yes, I'll do the custody as part of the divorce. And the reason is because divorce is not a zero sum game. Um, you know, nobody 
unless you're a sociopath, walks into divorce court and loses on every single thing that you ask for versus custody cases can be a zero sum game. You know, if you have custody and someone has sued you to get custody, you're either going to keep what you have or you're going to lose what you have. Um, there's no kind of, you know, in between a lot of times versus or the entire case can be dismissed. So you can spend a whole bunch of money on attorney's fees asking the court to modify your custody arrangement. And the judge says not happening. And then you're right back where you started, except poorer and matter um, versus divorce. At the end of the day, you're going to get divorced and the assets are going to be split. The debts are going to be split. The custody is going to be figured out. It's just a matter of what versus if. So I kind of like that knowing that my client is going to be happy with a result um, as opposed to, you know, modifications are, are, are tough. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Uh, so Regina, this is the part of the show that I don't have a name for yet. I've called it the lightning round, but it's not a lightning oh, no. round where uh, <laughs> the, the questions are not that short, but okay. I've, got, I've got some questions that I've been asking every guest. We're working on a name for the segment. Uh, the first one is the most important and it's this, the Oxford comma. Uh, do you know what it is and do you use it? I do know what it is and I do use it. Nice. Okay. All right. That's good. That's why I started the whole podcast. My mother was an English professor. So yeah. Oh, where did she teach? Oh, not anymore, but she taught at Florida state for a while. Um, and then she, uh, taught at high schools and she got her PhD in education, uh, later in life and she was 59, I think. So. Oh, Wow. Well, so you're from all over then. So, because you said you I'm, lived in Virginia, but now it's yeah, like she was in Yeah, my dad was in the Army, so I've lived in 13 states in two countries. So you're used to popping all over the place. Yep, absolutely. What two countries did you live in? Well, this, the states in Germany. So we were in uh, Germany. You're counting this as one. Yes, I'm counting this <laughs> as one. <laughs> so we lived in Germany from 84 to 87. And do you speak German? Nine. Uh, <laughs> no. I speak uh, I ein bitte, a little bit. I did when I was there when you were a kid and I, I just tend to gravitate towards language because I speak a little bit of Spanish and French because I took them in school, but uh, I spoke a little while I was there, but you know, nobody speaks German except when you're in Germany. And even if you go to the outlying countries like Austria, because they require that their students learn more than one language, most people who speak German also speak English or French or some other language which quite frankly is how it should be. So it's just not the need for me to kind of speak with German like it was Spanish, which is a language that more people speak, I think. Uh, maybe where you live, I live in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, which has a big oh, uh, yeah. Mennonite and Pennsylvania Dutch population. So yeah. a lot of people actually speak some uh, variation of German. One of my good friends is from Germany. She emigrated here from Germany. So I tried to learn a little bit just to make sure they weren't talking about me. Uh, when her and her family <laughs> were together and and saying things that I couldn't understand, I you know I just had to look up the words for like fat, ugly, uh, those kinds of things <laughs> just to just to make sure you know. Um, let me see here. Okay, so what's the weirdest tradition your family has? The weirdest tradition? <sighs> I don't know. We are a surprisingly boring family. I guess the weirdest thing I would say is that we don't do a lot for Christmas. Um, and there's no particular reason why. I think it's just because they they do a big thing for New Year's. And then Thanksgiving, I think, collectively is like our favorite holiday. So I always go home for Thanksgiving. We have like a big thing. And we're all into football. So obviously Thanksgiving is like all about football. But Christmas is kind of like, yeah, we're here. <laughs> and, and where is when you say go home? Is that Virginia? OK. 
So my dad got stationed there in 87. So they've been in the Northern Virginia area since 87. That's a long time. It's a long time because initially we thought we were only going to be there for three years and then just kept extending him up until he retired and they're still there. And I don't think my mom wants to be there, but they're still there. And there they are. And that's, and that's where they'll stay. Yeah. Uh, what is something that you hate, but you wish you loved? Um, eating healthy. That's the first time we've gotten that answer. That's a good one. <laughs> I hate it. Like why? Like, I feel like we have put people on the moon. Why can't we make spinach taste like white chocolate? Like it just, are people not devoting enough time to this? Is there yes. like a research project I can donate to? And how do we not have a pill that we can just take and it just keeps us, maintains us where we are? You know what I mean? Exactly. How is that science not? I mean, you'd be a, a trillionaire if you invented it. Absolutely. Like I have to make choices. Like, do I want the unhealthy stuff or do I want the healthy stuff? So I eat fairly healthy. I just don't like it. Right. <laughs> and I'm yeah. mad that I have to do it. <laughs> that's no, that's a very good one. Uh, do you have any superstitions? No. All right. What is something that people are obsessed with, but you just don't get the point of? Oh gosh. There's a lot. TikTok, <laughs> working, um, caring about what other people do in their personal lives. <laughs> Like that seems to be a thing. Like we just are a super judgy country. Um, you know, we like to sit on our couches and, you know, sort of tweet at people about decisions that they make in their personal lives. And I just, I honestly don't get it. Yeah. That, fair. You're, you're, you do all your stuff on a standing desk. So that way you can, you know, you're on the beach tweeting and judging, right? So you're not sitting on your couch. It's a prettier or background. Or have the decency to silently judge. Yeah, exactly. As it should be. Uh, what is something you get wrong almost every time you do it? Oh, something I get wrong. Oh, that's a hard one. I know that sounds stupid. Something I get wrong every time I do it. Yoga. I do it all the time and I love it and I do hot yoga and it's really detoxifying. I'm just terrible at it. And which is weird since I have a gymnastics background, but I somehow have lost all flexibility and balance. So I think I a true yogi would say there's no good or bad at yoga. Well, that's true. You just have but, to, it's called a practice for a reason, but I mean, let's be real. After 10 years, I should be able to do like something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. No matter how hard I try, uh, I'm always going to look, worse than the person next to me while doing yoga. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's the way of it. That's why I do it in my basement now, so nobody can see. That's the beauty of the internet. I don't, I don't have the motivation. It's so hard. Like, unless I'm in a class with other people and I would feel shamed if I left, I can't just do it at my house because I'll just sit down. Well, plus it sounds like you're bouncing all over God's creation, so then oh, you got to yeah. bring a yoga mat with you everywhere you go. Yeah, I don't do that. I just sign up for classes and I go. Right. That makes sense. Uh, this is the last question. What's the be best piece of advice you've ever been given? You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. Wait, say that one, one more time, because that's worth writing down. <laughs> you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. Do you like how I said, can you repeat that as if we're not recording this? Uh, <laughs> and it's not possible to listen back, but that's okay. Uh, then other people can write it down. That is a very good one. It's uh, kind of like a... a, a Zen thing, you kind of have to be sort of Zen and family law, unless you just kind of want to be one of those raging sociopaths. But 
even with other lawyers, I mean, they want to email me just nasty things about my client and you need to do this and you need to do that. And, you know, I don't engage. If something is not moving the case forward, I don't, I'm not your secretary. I'm not your paralegal. I don't have to give you validation for your rants. I can just tell you, and sometimes my responses have a nice day, or, you know, I decline to participate in this conversation and it just saves me a lot of mental peace, especially once people realize that I'm just not going to engage. And if it doesn't serve me, if it doesn't serve my client, if it does not serve my life, I just don't participate in you know, what I consider to be foolishness. And it's saved me a lot of heartache, I think, over the years. I'm sure. Well, I appreciate you participating in the foolishness that is this podcast. <laughs> uh, where can people find you, you know, whether it's social media, your website, what's the, what's the best place to track you down and keep track of what you're up to? Yeah, I'm not huge on social media, but I do have the um, Facebook group for lawyers, which is called Lawyer on the Beach. You can just go to lawyeronthebeach.com and it'll redirect to the Facebook site. On Instagram, it is... I should know this off the top of my head. I think it's Georgia Divorce Lawyer. <laughs> I'm sure the content is sizzling if you don't even remember uh, the thing. I'll tell people- I have way more followers than I deserve. Yeah, it's Georgia Divorce Lawyer on Instagram. Okay. And, but, but Lawyer on the Beach, that's the best place to interact with you and see yeah. what you're up to. And I'll, I'll yes. let everyone know that you've got all kinds of very interesting and helpful resources about uh, being remote and flat fees and being a solo and technology. And it's really a good resource that you've put together so from one nerd to another, I appreciate it. Unless you are offended, unless you are offended by me calling you a nerd. I, absolutely not. No, okay. I definitely know that I'm a nerd. Okay. Normally I'm wearing a bow tie and that's kind of like a, my gateway into that world besides the Superman and Star Wars figurines behind Well, I did me. notice the Captain America shield, so we yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, behind my head is all my Superman mem memorabilia. But this is an audio podcast, so they don't get to see any of that. One day we'll have a Patreon and then they can, you know, see the video maybe. <laughs> Well, Regina, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on uh, sure. and enjoy the weather down there and have a, have a good day. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.